Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. And we've got a very special guest with us tonight, Ash Whippin. Hi, Ash. Hello. Welcome to to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. So I think we'll kick off with our wildlife sightings. And as our guest, you get to go first. (laughs) Lucky me. Well, it's that time of year. It's pretty cold. So I'm up in Scotland in Edinburgh in the the middle of the city. So I kind of turn my attention to stuff indoors. And I've had a couple of beetle sightings already this year. So my first one was a golden spider beetle, which is like considering I'm a curator potentially not a good sighting because <laughs> um, this is like a, a, a beetle that's considered a pest in museum situations so that has been dispatched unfortunately and then I yesterday found a two-spot ladybird on my window frame in my kitchen area which I was really excited about but then this morning I was really devastated because I came into the kitchen and I found it squashed on the floor so either oh, no. me or my partner had accidentally trodden on it at some point early this morning. So that was really sad. Oh, no. So two beetle sightings in others' eyes, potentially not a good one for the spider beetle. And a little sad end to the ladybird, unfortunately. Uh, but in happier news, the oyster catchers have been chatting away outside my window. So that's pretty nice. Do they nest on the roofs where you are? No, they. I'm, I usually see them out and about on the coast because I'm actually in Leith in Edinburgh. So pretty near the, the waterfront. But in the evenings, they like a big flock of them just comes and feeds out on the park. Right. Something like hunting for worms and things. Oh, cool. Yeah, chatterboxes. Oh, they are. They are quite. They have an amazing kind of noise, don't they? But they can be quite mm. loud. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because I never noticed it before. Like before lockdown, I never really paid attention to birds. So maybe that maybe that's the reason. Oh yes, we'll talk about your turn to the dark side later on. I think. Oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> ruin your reputation Uh-oh. Well, how about you Vic well I've kind of got to, I've got an indoor sighting kind of and an outdoor one and the outdoor one is that my squirrel is back in the garden being quite fun watching watching it every morning it will kind of run across the fences and going to and from the bird feeders a couple of doors down and then back to the hedges so actually first time I've seen it in about a month actually um, so it's really nice to see that back again the starlings and sparrows have been enjoying the bird bath or should say bird baths i've got two bird baths and the pond but there are i swear these birds get really demanding so i choose not to feed the birds in my garden because a house a couple of doors down has about 20 or 30 bird feeders in it and we have a hedge on the other side so (laughs) there's enough food around for them but no one puts water out for them so they can come and drink and, and bathe and we've had a few days here where it's been cold enough overnight that the bird baths have frozen over and they'll come down and they'll sit there and then I swear, they, they sit there, they look at it, and then they look directly at the back of the house where I'm sitting having my breakfast. And they just make you feel guilty because then they just sit there and look at you. I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm coming. I'm going to, you know, get rid of the ice and refill the bird bath. But it, it's fun to watch them. I think the most we've had, most starlings we've counted in the bird bath so far is seven in one go. Wow. Not entirely sure how you get seven starlings in a bird bath. But there we go. <laughs> a lot of squawking and flapping. <laughs> <I imagine. laughs> yes. And the only other thing I've seen is like, I have like a weird fly carnage going on in the house at the moment. <laughs> so a couple of my house plants are a fern and a spider plant. I think that it's actually 
probably come out of the compost because it's not happened to any of the other plants. And these are the only two with that compost in. And there's basically fly carnage on my windowsills where the plants have been lots of little black flies that have mm-hmm. kind of come out and then just died, apparently, um, on my windowsill. <laughs> so I think they've, they've emerged from the soil. And then because I tend to have my windows open, and have them open quite a lot. I think it's just too cold for them. They just kind of demand. Send them to Erica. So, yeah, <laughs> yes, good them idea. Up, them up. But, and that's it, really. It's not not seen an awful lot around. Um, had some really funny weather, though, so I think, and I've not really been out in the garden looking for stuff, if I'm honest. But how about you, Neil? Um, same garden birds, sparrows coming in, blue tit, starlings occasionally. There's a robin been hopping around. I had to post a letter with my daughter the other day and sitting, singing in the bush outside our house. And we get a flock of long-tailed tits coming through occasionally, which are my favourite of those oh, little birds, I think. Oh. So. And for years, they never touched the feeders because in some areas they haven't learned about the fat balls, but they obviously have learned now and they will come along and go nuts on them the whole lot at once, which is wonderful. But other than that, I had to go into work and there's a little stream there. It started to silt up this stream and not seem to have much life in it bit concerned about it so it looked a bit cleaner so before i went home i quickly jumped in with a net did a bit of kick saplings where you hold a net downstream of your wellies and give it mud or stones a bit of a kick and it was full of burrowing mayfly nymphs and they're the ones that grow up Ooh. into the large ones that only live for a day which is really nice and i also found some weird looking larvae i think it's a horse fly and a one was definitely a crane fly because of this little star shaped thing around their spiracles so that's quite nice so that brings me quite nicely on to Something I saw on the telly, if that counts, which was, and let me just check the name of it, it is Natural History Museum World of Wonder, where previous yeah. guest Erica McAllister was on. And you saw it as well, didn't you, Ash? I did, yeah. I watched yeah. it on Catch Up. And Erica is on good form. If you haven't listened to the Erica Top podcast, on. go and listen to it. It's a treat. You know, not, not that she set a really high standard for entomological guests, Ash. But, uh... No, no pressure at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Erica. And George as well, wasn't there? So there we go. Yep, no pressure. <laughs> That's about it for me, really. Haven't haven't been out. Obviously, we're all um, hiding inside, aren't we? Mostly. It's yeah. kind of that time of year. There's not a huge amount of stuff going on. Or I would say actually, in kind of follow up from our previous episode, the snowdrops in my parents' garden are actually just starting to break through now. And I I can go and visit my parents because we've actually formed a support bubble. And I was around there yesterday, and they're just starting to poke up through the grass and the mosses, which was really nice. cool. Yeah, they're actually they're actually in bud at work the snowdrop it's quite sheltered in that little bit of woodland and quite warm in the morning i imagine be interested to see when they start opening Might be... yeah the, this is on top of the mendips it's not sheltered no, it's a bit colder <laughs> there isn't it follow up some feedback we've already had some nice words said about the snowdrop episode so thanks for that we've had two different comments on the leech podcast i did there's a really nice long one from richard avery who left it on my website i won't say all of it but i'll mention the bit where he said wow that was tremendous because <laughs> i want to <laughs> And he's made a quite important point, which was, uh, I have long since thought that lack of knowledge of a subject was a possible reason to fear it when it was of a particular type of animal. Uh, Such ignorance is displayed in the comments of gross and weird. Yeah, he goes on and does make some analogies with xenophobia, but I'm not going to go too deep into that because we've mentioned that sort of thing before, I think. But he also said superb information at an accessible level, great entertainment and in an enjoyable, informal style. So I thought, ha, I have to do more podcasts without Vic, but... What did we have as well, Vic? We had another comment, didn't we? We did, yes. (laughs) Which basically said, when's Vic coming back? (laughs) (laughs) Although I don't think it was meant like that. For humorous purposes, I will interpret it as such. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for all the feedback, guys. Um, We just thought we'd try something different. Vic couldn't make at the end of December, and I thought I didn't want to short change you guys. So I thought I'd just stick something out before the end of the year. 
Let us know if you liked it or not, really. You got any more thoughts on it? I think it's time for the news now, isn't it? Yeah, we, we said we're only actually going to do one bit of news in this one because we did cover news quite extensively in the previous episode. Because we have got Ash on as a guest, we thought it would be a good news story to discuss with her. So I think you've got that, haven't you, Neil? Yeah, if you've been looking online at all, and I think it was trending on Twitter even at one point, the news that neonectide pesticides, these are the ones that are famous as what the press call bee-killing pesticides, but they kill a lot of things. And they're controversial because... The plants are actually covering them as seeds, so they're actually in the plant. Now, that has the benefit that you don't have to spray pesticides all the time, which is a good thing, because it means pesticides don't run off into rivers rather than on the fields where they should be, which is inevitable if you've got an air-sprayed thing. But it ends up being in the plant, so the pollen, if the plant dies and goes into the environment, and they're quite persistent chemicals, and this is the problem. And they're super, super potent. I think it's like one tablespoon can kill thousands of insects. It's quite scary stuff. So the EU banned it. Of course, we're not in the EU anymore. But under the EU law, there was a bit in the law that said for emergency use, so if pests got out of control, you could use them. But you'd have to sort of go for all the correct routes. And the NFU campaigned to DEFRA to get uh, an exception for the sugar beet farmers to use it. But what has raised a lot of eyebrows and certainly put my back up, shall I say, is my personal opinion here, but not just me, I have to say, is the way they did it was they emailed the farmers directly and told them to email DEFRA but to not let anyone know they were doing it, thus avoiding any sort of scrutiny from outside, which begs the question, if this is such a good idea, why were they scared of outside pressure? Was the bit that I would say about that. And of course, they've got the emergency legislation so they can use it now. Uh, there's been a bit of uproar about it, quite understandably. Some debate on both sides. Some people saying, like I said, that, you know, they're not always bad, but the more studies that come out seem to just show that they are bad. Do you have any thoughts on neonectides, Ash? Yeah, I am in no way a fan at all. The research that I have read and that I've seen has all been showing the damaging effects of them. You only need to follow Dave Golson on Twitter to know this or to read some of his fantastic books. Yeah, it's really bad news. It's like we've taken two steps or 20 steps backwards. Yeah, because we had the story about flea treatments being sort of the only mm-hmm. legal route for it to get into the environment. And that was having an effect, you know, just what we're putting on our pets and... Yeah, yeah, it's it's slightly worrying. And the other thing I think a lot of people are up in arms is it's a is it the thin end of the wedge? You know, we're out of the EU now. Sorry to get political, but we're out of the EU now. We're not subject to legislation, although we might be under the trade deal. Let's not go into that hole. But <laughs> Boris did promise a bonfire of legislation that's holding up commercial interests. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, doesn't look good, does it? I think is the <laughs> would be mm. my summary. Let's see what happens though. Try and be positive, but we may have a bit of a fight on our hands in the future to stop any more of this happening. Now that negative news yeah. is out of the way, shall we move on to something a bit more positive? We have the lovely Ashley Whiffering with us. I will switch between Ash and Ashley, I'm sure, throughout the podcast. It's the same person. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> well, I first came across you, I think I'd seen you on Twitter occasionally, but it was through the Nick Baker's live shows he's been doing all lockdown, which has started again, everyone, 5.30 every weekday, is it, I believe? Yeah, it's 5.30 every weekday. Nick underscore bug underscore baker. But if you type in Nick Baker, you'll be able to find it. Yeah. So, Ashley, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us what you do and where you work and stuff? Yeah, sure. Thanks again for having me on, guys. So, I am Ashley Whiffin, or you can call me Ash. I am Assistant Curator of Entomology at National Museum Scotland, so based up in Edinburgh. And I have been working for the museum for just over six years altogether, several different contracts. But my current position, I, yeah, I'm Assistant Curator and basically involves, oh, it's just a really dynamic role. Um, 
a whole host of things, but ultimately caretaker for this collection of two million insects. So it's myself and uh, my line manager who work directly with the insect collection. And then we're part of a small team um, managing all invertebrates uh, and then within a bigger department of natural sciences. So natural sciences collection is about 10 million specimens in total and the museum altogether has about 12 million. So insects represent quite a large chunk of the museum's collection and it's kind of my task then to organise and curate that collection. It's because collections are a lot like libraries if you think about it. So specimens are arranged taxonomically and kind of whenever you have new material to add to the collection you need to add it into the kind of correct sequence so that it is then accessible to researchers and scientists later on and then kind of it just involves absolutely everything from going out in the fields collecting new samples um, accepting donations from other entomologists and incorporating those into the collection if you've got field samples then it goes you know you've got a hell of, hell of a lot of identification work to be done so a lot of time at microscopes you've then got the kind of documentation side of things which is really time consuming sometimes especially as now we're trying to digitize a lot of the collections too so sometimes inputting historic records too and then you've got the tricky task of like transcribing handwritten labels that may be like 150 years old and then there's also in before covid times hosting all our wonderful visitors to the collection and that's one of the best bits really is that i through my job get to meet all kinds of different entomologists and students and researchers that's a part i'm really really missing at the moment but yeah it's kind of my role is just then making sure that the collection is accessible so to basically to researchers in-house uh to researchers abroad by sending out loans of the uh, from the collection and then also a lot of the work also involves education so it's about making the collection accessible to the general public in the form of talks exhibitions displays and it's just really dynamic which is why I really like it so it's a, it's a bit of everything and I get to meet a lot of really cool people along the way oh, lovely that sounds like a really cool job what sparked your original interest in kind of insects or invertebrates and like how did that kind of lead you down this path that you're on now if you like yeah I like my my route to entomology hasn't been straightforward apparently I liked insects as a kid used to keep ants and things or try to but then I definitely went off them especially I think in my early teens I was always really interested in biology and I studied that through um to college but actually what I wanted to do was be a forensic scientist so I think I watched way too much CSI. We also had a friend of the family who is a fingerprint expert and she took me into work with her, uh, sorry, police. And I just thought that was absolutely incredible. So I went to the University of Derby and I studied forensic science. Thought, yeah, fingerprints was what I was going to be doing. And it was in my second year that I was given a lecture on forensic entomology and that just blew my mind and I just saw insects in a totally new light and I thought well this is pretty cool ended up doing my third year research project on insect succession so this is monitoring the different insects that um, colonize the body and studying the kind of pattern of succession on the body because I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this like everybody knows but I'm, maybe there are some people out there that haven't watched Gil Grissom in CSI so don't know insects can be used to solve various crimes primarily and probably the most important one is in murder investigations because they can provide a timeline 
And so that's kind of what part of my research was feeding into um, in my Sergio project. And I became really, really obsessed with this to the point that I thought I wanted to be a forensic entomologist. But then I looked into doing a master's and through my master's, which I did at Harper Adams um, University, I was persuaded to broaden my horizons. So Professor Simon Leather is to blame for me diversifying a bit. And he made me study ladybirds. He really, he really twisted my arm and I had to yeah move away from the uh, the dead stuff but it's definitely beneficial in the long run I think there are very few jobs within forensic entomology in the UK for instance we have two forensic entomologist specialists and this is because <laughs> we should be grateful for this fact but our murder rate isn't really high enough to warrant more than two experts <laughs> and this is a good thing so I'm quite happy that I, I didn't go that route as well because I also felt like the pressure of being an expert witness was just way too much it was definitely the entomology and the science of it that appealed rather than the the law side of things so yeah I, I did the master's then I was taught by a few guest lecturers from the NHM during my master's so Max Barkley who heads up the Coleoptera collection at the NHM and Erica McAllister who you know very well so really it's kind of her fault because I went and volunteered for her after my master's to get some experience and I just fell in love with collections and I really really wanted to work in a museum after that I didn't take on flies although she she was very convincing uh, but beetles had kind of already hooked me in a little bit so I was desperately applying for any kind of job that involved beetles or potentially museums and a job came up at Edinburgh University working on burying beetles and I'd already met them through my work with the forensic entomology so I was like oh yeah this would be cool and it's in Edinburgh like that was pretty cool so I moved up here for that and I did that job for about a year and volunteered at National Museum Scotland and just happened to be in the right place at the right time because they were recruiting for somebody to help move their insect collections to a brand new facility. So that was my first role with the museum, moving the collections from one building to another. But, and I'm still there today, so <laughs> something worked out. So are you effectively Dr. Erica McAllister's Padawan liner then? <laughs> if I study flies, maybe. I yeah. think I was a disappointment because I didn't go the fly route. But, um, you went to the dark side. I did, yeah. <laughs> but it's still, still good. insects, yeah, I champion the yeah. insects. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I'm very grateful to her. She taught me so much. She threw me in the deep end. I remember like one of the NHM Lates events. I'd never done outreach before. And I like watched her do a bit of it. And then she's like, right, your turn. Just talk to the public. And I was like, oh, God, I've never done this before. And I was so nervous. But yeah, she's been a great mentor. Really, really supportive. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Well, we're on the subject of museum collections and stuff and outreach. We had a question from Beth Nightingale and she asked, how have you found that museums have changed or changing in the way of presenting displays to the public, particularly entomology displays, exhibits? And mm. How have they changed? Oh, they've changed in huge ways. Like in the last 100 years or 50 years, even the way that insect collections are displayed is very different. In fact, so it's it's a little it divides people I will say so our museum in particular a lot of visitors will come to me and say like where are all the insects now because they're displayed in a different way and the old style way would have been to have them segregated into different into their different orders or into even into birds versus mammals versus reptiles versus insects so completely segregated out so you'd have the insect hall and you'd have drawers upon drawers upon drawers and rows of pinned insects and this really was impressive in that it showed the diversity of these animals and the collections and they were kind of very academic in their presentation but now 
the way that they're presented is much more like kind of holistic approach and that like all the animals are jumbled in together and you start grouping um, the displays based on like behavior or habitat Um, and I think this helps people see the interconnectedness of of the animal kingdom so I I think this new approach is really important and also is presented in a more engaging way so you have interactives I mean if you'd spoken to the curators you know 80 years ago about having interactives and things that people could touch they probably would have gasped in horror I don't know (laughs) Um, it is completely different and I think it's great because the you know people so creative there's some really fantastic exhibitions on entomology in the last few years and I think my favorite one is how like photography is being incorporated now I mean you two are like amazing photography wizards so you'll appreciate this too but the microsculpture exhibition was really kind of I would say groundbreaking but I'm not a photographer but what it really did was put insects on the map and like for those of you not familiar with it this is the um, exhibition that was a partnership between Oxford University Museum of Natural History and Levon Biss and he photographed insects through stacking but put them on these ginormous canvases so they really were huge and forced people to look at the tiny minute details and structures of the insects and what was also really cool was that Oxford then had the display of the specimens themselves alongside these enormous portraits so yeah things like that like there's huge change I think there's potential for even more creative and impressive ways of displaying insects too I think at the moment with Covid it's a it's a little bit of a tricky area but I'm excited to see what what the future holds. Yeah, that, that exhibition is absolutely amazing so I, I did actually manage to see it when it came down here hmm. and it the thing is it's not they're basically works of art aren't they mm-hmm. you know you look at them and you think it, it's absolutely amazing how he's done it and the story behind behind it how it was created yeah. but then when you actually see them in real life and you're standing there in front of it and you're surrounded by it it does absolutely blow your mind because all the colors the details and it is done in such a way that it, it does look like a huge you know, work of art rather than a photograph of an insect. Mm-hmm. It is absolutely stunning. I mean, I think it was a couple of years ago now that I saw it, and it was in it was in a relatively small exhibition area actually. So you were basically completely surrounded by it. Yeah. Um, but it does. It's absolutely phenomenal, and I think that certainly went a long way to starting to change people's perceptions on insects and also photography and and how we view them as well. Yeah, absolutely. It showed the beauty in them. Mm in the tiny details and all the amazing colors as well i mean you yeah. know you know to, not until you really kind of get up close well you actually spend time studying or photographing you realize you know just the range of colors in some of these insects you you wouldn't just see it in your garden you think oh it's just another black beetle or something but actually it's not at all it has all these amazing colors and textures to it and mm. and i i think personally they all have their own little characters as well but that's just me <laughs> no you're not alone Vic. you're not alone <laughs> yeah i think what it did was that we're really the lucky few those of us that see these insects down a microscope or you know via a macro lens and so it opened up what we see to this wider audience which is what photography does in general but on this scale like in a venue where you know in a free museum so people could really just be totally immersed in these insects yeah it was wonderful yeah. Hope to did, see more did you did you ever get to see any no i didn't i, I saw the the oh. pictures online and i remember he i think one of the spring watch unsprungs had him on there didn't they and or certainly chris packham had the full scale cinadella uh tiger beetle that's it mm-hmm. Uh, that's weird I, I went to a scientific name other than that <laughs> that's unusual for me and that looked amazing I mean I know they're because I, I tend to do live things just 
because this is the nature of me, really. <laughs> I like to punish myself, I think. And yeah, trying to photograph Tiger Beetles, period, let alone a stacking image is uh, near impossible sometimes. Yeah, it looked amazing. Just anything with iridescence on. And it's really, actually, when you're lighting things artificially, I mean, you must find this, Ash, when you're doing some of the specimens as well. Getting iridescence, especially if you're mm. doing something like a stack where the things overlap, yeah. I mean, even a bit of reflection or highlight can really throw off a stack. So how he's pulled that off, I was properly impressed because he, he did super zoomed in mm-hmm. and stacked them, didn't he? And then mm-hmm. he also did sort of a panorama of them all. So the, the it's like a gigapixel picture as well, isn't it? It's, yeah, he'd like focus on an antenna and do yeah. that. And then the next bit, yeah. If you haven't seen it, go and check him out on YouTube and see the video of how, how it was done. Really impressive. Amazing so, yeah, stuff. In, the exhibitions have changed massively and there's lots of exciting stuff that can happen. So, Ash, sometimes some people think it's a bit controversial killing invertebrates for collections. But could you explain why that's actually necessary for conservation and studying these creatures? Yeah, that's it's a super, a super important question, Neil. Um, and it is something I'm asked all the time. Um, so the reason that we still need to collect specimens is to enable an accurate identification firstly. So as as we all know, lots of our insects in the UK are pretty small. Um, this means that their ID features are gonna be really small and quite well, more often than not, it means that their identification features are actually on the inside as well. So I'm sure you've heard this from other entomologists, but there, you know, there's a lot of time that our conversations will involve chat about dissecting out insect genitalia, because that is what we have to do to identify things. So you can't identify all insects in the field. You can't identify them all from photographs, even amazingly good photographs like the kind that you guys produce. A photograph can't be dissected. So to be absolutely sure you've got the right identification, you've got to have a voucher specimen. And then, you know, all these specimens, when they're contained in collections, they can then be revisited. So if you've got other scientific questions that you want to ask, if you want to study, you know, the distribution of a species, the, the change in distribution over time, the collections will provide a definite answer there because you've got that accurate species information. If you go on records alone, you've got no way of double checking that the identification was correct if you haven't got the voucher specimen. And, and then also you've got the case of sometimes what we thought or what taxonomists thought was one species is actually two, you know, advances um, in technology, you know, you're looking at the DNA of the species now might reveal that, that you actually had two species when, when you really just had one, thought you had one. So that's why we still collect specimens. Um, and then, you know, to have good quality data that can inform conservation is absolutely essential Uh, taxonomy and collections underpin conservation work because without that correct um, identification you really don't know what you're looking at i think that answers that question rather nicely it's Um, a little bit difficult because kids will often ask the question especially when i take out displays on you know public events and stuff is like is it dead yeah did you kill it (laughs) that can be a more difficult one especially when there's a label on it that actually has my name on it um but yeah, it's they they all go to a very very good cause. Um, they're helping us to better understand our our biodiversity and and the world that we're in. And when you think about insects, they are at the bottom of the food chain. They are naturally predated on, 
Um, so taking one or two voucher specimens in, in the grand scheme of things does no damage whatsoever to a population. Uh, we unfortunately will kill more insects by just going out on a walk or getting into a car. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing, isn't it? It is only one or two. Mm-hmm. You're not, you know, you're not taking hundreds of them and killing them. You're just taking one or two to allow you to yeah. to do the work that, that needs to be done at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, the two things someone told me, I remember Essex Field Club, obviously we've got some big um, insect collections and stuff with that. And uh, one of the top recorders there, he said to me, he was told many years ago uh, by the previous generation to him that if you took say two or three specimens as the animal to die out it was going to die out anyway mm-hmm. and the thing i always say to people is look you might lose four of that species of spider but if we can prove that that's where it lives and it lives in that habitat and the, the data from all around the country it will a help us prove that it lives there if there's someone wants to develop the site mm-hmm. um, and b it helps give us information to help conserve it on sites it's on so Absolutely. it's kind of as Spock said, <laughs> these are the many outrageous and the of the few, isn't it? That kind of stuff again. <laughs> yes. Oh, Star Trek reference as well. Hey, you're getting the references in tonight. Yeah. Yeah, so. absolutely. I think what what I want people to know is that it's a really hard part of the job. It's not a nice part of the job at all, having to euthanise specimens. I'm often asked how we do it. And the preferred method by myself and my many colleagues is to put your samples in the freezer. The insects just get really, really cold, like they would naturally outdoors, um, you know, kind of like go to sleep. It's a nice, calm way for them to go. Obviously, their activity is very, very low level until peacefully go away but if you're in the field you can't use that method so we have some chemicals that we'll use that will kill the insect within seconds but it's a necessary evil that has to be done for the science and I think it upsets me when people think that I will have this misconception that you know entomologists you know just out there to kill insects and it's yeah it's not it's not a fun part of the job and you can see from how I was upset about this uh, squashed two-spot ladybird on my kitchen floor this morning I don't like I don't like killing insects and if I'm out and about on walks, I just tend to take photos of them when I'm not working. And there's, there's the whole care taken in preparing them so they don't get wasted as well, isn't there? You know, people... Absolutely, yeah. Every little life is preserved indefinitely. Once they're in the collection, they're there forever, uh, we hope. As long as, <laughs> as, as long as the collection continues to be cared for, the specimens will be preserved. And it's those specimens then go towards better understanding scientifically, education. Yeah. There, there are so much, so many benefits to it. So it's you just have to not get attached to the mash. That's what it is. I know. But there was so this hard. one time when a colleague from London brought me up a lesser stag beetle for the collection because he'd found it, thought it was kind of on its last legs. And I just didn't have the heart. I was like, this beetle is gorgeous. I love it. Um, she's going to stay with me and live out the rest of her days. My flatmate and I named her Houdini because she kept escaping from her little cage that she had. She feasted on banana for about seven months. She lived way longer <laughs> than we anticipated. But eventually she died naturally and she is preserved within the collection. There we go. But if I did that with every specimen <laughs> I collected, I would not have a job, I don't think. <laughs> I would not be a very productive curator. <laughs> And the other problem, of course, as well, isn't it? It's like with butterflies and stuff, if you waited till they died, there'd be nothing left of the wings <laughs> to identify them with. And so, yeah, they're just, when they get older, um, a stag bit was a bit different because it's built like a blooming tank, but some of these more delicate yeah. things, there wouldn't be anything <laughs> left to identify, would there? <laughs> you let die naturally. Yeah. 
There are a few insects that we don't tend to like, though. The one that I mentioned at the beginning, the golden spider beetle. So in, in the museum environment, there are certain insects that we deem as pests. So your clothes moths, your carpet beetles, these are all the enemy of collections. But I think I think it was Nick, actually, that described the job of a curator as basically like protecting a load of insects from a few live insects. Yeah. And that's <laughs> it. Yeah, you really are like you're trying to protect the collection from from a few a very, very, very small minority of pest insects. So those are those are a few that I don't mind. The question is, do you have specimens of lots of specimens of clothes moths and carpet beetles in the collection now? Strangely or, not. That's a bit you, you, so many of them you don't think to collect them, I do one. <laughs> I wonder if that's the same everywhere. Yeah, actually uh, and I've been guilty in the past of giving examples over to us like a, a teaching collection to help train people identify pests rather than incorporate them into the collection. So uh, it's actually a really good point, Neil. Pests you could have the greatest collection of them in the country. <laughs> <laughs> A data on pests is really important too. Yeah. Well, we've got another question, haven't we, Vic? Yep. This one is from Alan James. And he said, after bees needed for pollination, what are the most important insects and what would happen to the world if they were to go extinct? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I think first we need to maybe tackle that it's not just bees yeah. uh, that are needed for pollination. Yeah. This is a common misconception, so please don't feel bad, Alan. I think the media are mostly to blame for this. So it is not just bees and it is not just honeybees either. Oh, gosh, how often do we hear that? So there's lots of different bees. Your solitary bees and, most importantly, your native solitary bees um, are crucial for pollination but also your flies your moths your butterflies and your beetles are also pollinators too so often overlooked we need all these wonderful insects in order to have the happy healthy functioning pollination services and then if we go beyond that i'm going to have to say that the most important insects are beetles because i'm biased i am a coleopterist so beetles are my favorite insect group and they contain a lot of the essential decomposers and recyclers so that's my niche the beetles that i work on are carrion beetles so they are involved in recycling all of nature's dead animal life so without them and without dung beetles of course who recycle all the animal feces we could potentially be wading through a load of dung and dead bodies which would be pretty grim and then we kind of add in to the fact that if we take away all these wonderful insects then what will your birds and reptiles and amphibians and things be feeding on yeah, there, there is um can't remember which i think probably life in the undergrowth it's that quote from sir david attenborough isn't there mm-hmm. that basically the you know that uh, if all the backbone animals were to die out or if we die out then uh, ecosystems would carry on they would they would get by but if we were to lose all the invertebrates ecosystems would basically collapse yeah we we cannot live without them we basically. cannot and they're just plain awesome you know they are, they are. yeah they are yeah. you've mentioned carrion beetles because i used to know them as burying beetles but that's only part of the carrion beetles isn't it um, yeah are you part of the recording scheme for them or in charge of it i can't remember yes. what it is now yeah, it's a team effort. Yeah, so I help co-organise the National Silphidy Recording Scheme. And this was a collaboration that we set up in 2016 out of my love for this group of beetles and a little bit of peer pressure from certain curated <laughs> friends who also run recording schemes. I shall not name them. They know who they are. But they said, come on, you know, this has been really great. You could do this. I didn't want to do it on my own. I knew that there was a, another coleopterist who was already thinking about maybe doing a recording scheme 
and I later found out actually he did launch one that kind of hadn't done the kind of public facing side that I had in mind. So I collaborated with him and then also got in touch with a student that was doing his master's research on carrion beetles. And I thought like, oh, you know, it'd be great to involve him too. So there's the three of us, Richard Wright, Matt Esch and myself. And so Richard kind of dealt with all like the identification key side of things. He already had written one, but he revamped it for us, which was fab. And then Matt and I kind of got together and we set up a Twitter account and we started running workshops and yeah, just basically trying to recruit more people to record these Beatles because we think they're awesome. At the time that I wanted to start doing this, there was a couple of moth trappers who had noticed that they were getting less and less of these Beatles to their trap. So that was something that was spurring me on as well. Cause like, oh, is this an indication that, you know, the these Beatles aren't doing so well? Do we need to start worrying about the conservation of them? So what the scheme does is we try and get more, more and more people to record them. And I identify them send in their records so that we have a bigger data set to work with so we can actually start working out what is going on with their distributions and their what's happening to their populations so we've got a few years of data behind us now we've actually just hit over 30,000 records which is fantastic so thanks if you're one of those people that sent in your records they are a super easy group of beetles to identify so if you're like someone that's maybe just getting into beetles these are kind of like gateway beetles because they're quite big you can identify most of them in the field with a hand lens or even without a hand lens so they're a nice accessible group and hopefully will inspire people to go on and start recording more beetles yeah, because I've had them in the moth trap at work. I think I actually yeah. tagged you in the photo, actually. But uh, one question from me is quite often you find these, especially uh, the classic red and white ones, um, you quite often find they're covered in mites on the underside and some of the top side. Are these parasitic ones or are they hitching a lift? Yeah. And why are they on them? So these are phoretic mites and they're on the burying beetles. So sorry, no, I totally glossed over the fact that you said they're yeah. called burying beetles, not carrying beetles. So we've yeah. kind of called the family as a whole, the sylphidae, carrion beetles it should really be carrion beetles and their allies because you've got a couple of predatory species in there that are absolutely nothing to do with carrion <laughs> keep it simple we call them all carrion beetles they have very but fresh then... carrion <laughs> <laughs> but yeah we kind of like d- divide the family up into its two subfamilies so you've got the necrophorini and the sylphini and the necrophorini are all the burying beetles so the necrophorus and these are your orange and black ones and quite often they will be found with these mites sometimes you might just get two or three mites scurrying around on the back of the beetle and other times you might find a beetle that is absolutely covered like it may be incapacitated it's so densely covered in mites. I remember I was in Cornwall when I was a kid and so I said oh look it's babies because they knew I love insects oh it's babies are coming off and I'm like yeah, uh, we hear that yeah they're probably parasitic mites <laughs> and it's like oh dropping it now <laughs> well, but, so, they're, not, they're not really parasitic they're not in not in the way that other mites can be they really are just hitching a lift as you mentioned before so this is this is what the foracy is I like to call it the beetle bus so the the mites are interested in carrying too they know that this beetle is headed towards dead stuff so they hitch a ride on the beetle bus and then they get off at the carrying bus stop so they really are just using it as a form of transportation and it's generally believed then that this is a mutualistic relationship and that these mites are beneficial to the beetle because once they get to the carrion these mites are going to predate on any fly eggs and larvae 
sorry Erica but because the flies are also fantastic decomposers too so um, these are competition for the beetles they usually find the carrion before the beetles do so the adult beetles will usually predate on the any maggots and eggs that are there too but these mites also help to do that so generally like everyone's like oh yeah these these mites are good don't worry about it but actually some research has shown that these mites can also feed on the eggs of the beetles too so it's a little bit of a gray area and I think there's a bit more research to be done into that relationship. But generally, if you see a beetle covered in these mites, don't worry about it. It will be fine. I think you remember reading that about dung beetles having sort of mites that feed on dung. Or probably the yeah. fly, fly larva again. Isn't there a similar thing with them as well, isn't there? Yeah, they have some that look very, very similar. I don't identify the mites myself. Yeah, they um, have a similar, using them as a mode of transportation again. Oh, wow. I love yeah. that term, the beetle buff. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> it's great. Thanks. <laughs> The burying beetles, are they the ones that exhibit parental care? Yeah, what makes them so special? They just have a really wonderful family dynamic. So if you're not familiar with these beetles, really, they get their name burying beetles because that is what they do. That is their behaviour. So to avoid competition from other scavengers like foxes, badgers and things, they're going to have to conceal this carcass, this resource. So whether they find like a dead mouse or a dead bird, they are going to work as a pair to bury it. So they use their like really broad heads and their good front legs to excavate soil underneath and like gradually the carcass kind of sinks down underground and then they conceal it with soil. And then they begin the process of preparing the carcass. I really hope you're not eating at the moment, anyone. <laughs> so they will strip it of its fur or feathers. They've got these amazingly powerful mandibles to do this. And then they will kind of mush the carcass into a ball shape. And then they have these anal secretions, which have antimicrobial properties that actually help slow down the decomposition of the flesh. So they're preserving this food source for longer. Male and female have mated and laid eggs in the soil nearby. And once the eggs hatch into larvae, they instinctively go up to the top of the carcass where the parents have made like a crater. It's almost like a nest. And then the larvae will sit in this nest crater and be fed by the parents. So both male and female will feed on the rotting flesh and regurgitate to the kids, which is lovely it's like very much like you know your bird nest setup but with beetles and this is such a unique behavior in insects because they are they're, they're non-social and we don't often see this level of care and dedication from non-social insects there's that and then you've got all sorts of wonderful kind of dramas it's like a soap opera you'll have rival males coming in challenging the present male and you'll have rival females coming in a bit of brood parasitism it's quite epic you also have things like the because they'll try to assess like based on the size of the carcass how many eggs to lay um you know how many mouths this this resource can feed but if they get that wrong there's a potential that they will cull some of the offspring too many mouths to feed but also if the larvae beg too much the parents will sometimes kill them as well so there's all sorts of drama happening in the burying beetle family makes for fascinating watching i my first job in Edinburgh was at the university working on the Necrophorus vespiloides, our most common burying beetle, which is used in a lot of, in a lot of research looking at this behaviour. And at any one time I was breeding lots of different families of these beetles, you know, two parents in a mouse carcass in a box. That's your family set up there. And I also had like a stock of about 3,000 beetles to feed as well. Wow. <laughs> oh, I was thinking about that. Oh, you know, killing the young if there's not enough food and chest, you know, if they beg too much. And just thinking about lockdown being a parent. So, <laughs> you know, 
you know, the stories you tell your kids. Yeah. <laughs> if we yeah. were carrying if beetles. Carrying beetles, yeah. <laughs> it shows how fascinating some of these insects actually are you know the majority of people just wouldn't I mean I, I didn't know to the extent you know until obviously just listening to you now it's absolutely fascinating but you know the majority of people don't realize these dramas that unfold in these little worlds and yeah and sometimes I think they're actually far more fascinating than our birds and our mammals there's so much that goes on and just, I just don't think it gets enough publicity I also think it'd make a great little kids book for, uh, oh, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Illustrated properly, we make it great kids' book. Yeah. And Edith it. nagged mummy too much, so mummy cold Edith. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I totally agree with you, book. And this is happening in your back garden. Like these beetles, a few of the species are really common. So, I mean, if you know, if you moth trap the necrophorus, the burying beetles are attracted to light. So, yeah, they're if you get them in your garden lucky you be grateful that this amazing stuff's happening right on your front door if they do see one will they report them for the scheme thanks for that neil yeah <laughs> so <laughs> matt and i are verifiers on iRecord, and we prefer um if you can to submit your records there so it's a brilliant easy to use website there's also an app so you can have it on your phone no excuses about not remembering the location because you can do it right then and there we've also got a web page on the uk beetle recording website so you can have a look at that and our free identification key is on there so that can get you started with uh, the identification but if anybody has any issues or any questions about how to identify them you can get in touch with us our twitter and our emails on there but also so Matt and I have done one of these fantastic FSC Biolinks webinars recently. So we did a little intro to how to identify them, which is available on YouTube, as is one I just did with Bug Life Scotland recently. So you can have a little free tutorial on how to identify carrion beetles. Definitely be checking that out. So now one reason we had you on at this time of year is that we're just coming up to the start of the season for them, aren't we? Oh, it's nearly time. Very exciting. Actually, you can find one of the predatory species at the moment. So our common snail hunter is really actually easier to find this time of year than in the spring or summer. So this is one of those little black beetles. <laughs> you know, there are lots of those. But this one is you're going to find it under bark, under dead logs, under moss, where it's going to be overwintering at the moment. So much easier to find now. Please, if you are going to be poking about and pulling bark off fallen logs and things, make sure you do pop that stuff back. Don't do loads of habitat destruction. But you can go and have a look for these beetles now. So you'll find them along with lots of ground beetles and wood lice and some other wonderful things. And they'll be curled up and they'll often have their heads kind of tucked under. And the defining characters of these guys is that they have a really narrow skinny head and they use this head to feast on snails so they're predatory and they will go out and hunt mollusks they are quite evil and they will bite the foot of the snail causing it to retract into its shell the snail will then release it's like defensive mucus but the beetle is armed with digestive enzymes which can break through this mucus and then start digesting the flesh of the mollusk which is a bit I feel a little bit sad for the snails, but also amazingly feisty beetle. So I think the dream for me would be to find one in action. I've seen some fantastic photos from our recorders, but I'm yet to see this actually in action with an adult beetle feasting on a snail. Have you? No, but my next question was going to be, at work, I've been finding these carrion beetles that are black, have their head curled under, under logs and in leaves. Yes. <laughs> so I think I know what they are now. It wasn't <laughs> so that's very quite handy. 
yeah, they come I've, two colour forms, black or a reddish brown. I found two in under one log, and again, like you say, with a few carabid ground beetles. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what they are, so that's pretty cool. I'm not sure I've seen one then. Well, knowingly seen one before. I took some pictures and haven't got around to sending them to you yet, oh, so I uh, look forward to seeing those. Good. Yeah, you can go out and look for these ones now, and then alternatively wait a month or two. Our first burying beetle sightings are often beginning of March, potentially getting a bit early. I think we did have some records in February last year. So start looking out then. If you've got a light trap, run that because that's the easiest, most mess-free way of recording these beetles. But you can, if you're interested in it, do carry and trapping too, because that's great fun. Who doesn't love putting a rotting mouse out in a in a pitfall trap? <laughs> <laughs> I think these insect groups are great, like the dung beetles and the carrying beetles, because for kids, they are really engaging. Like anything with the ick factor just goes down they, a tree. They kids. love that gruesomeness, though, don't they? Mm-hmm. It's the one thing that I found if I've, you know, been talking to school groups or anything on my Forgotten Little Creatures project. And I look at the ages and if it's young children, I always bring up the zombies now because they love that gruesome factor. Yep. It's just, it's true. They just love that gruesome factor. And it's a great way to get them into it and get them interested. And then if you can kind of hold them. Oh, it's funny with moth traps (laughs) because there's a brilliant group on Facebook called Moth Trap Intruders, which has all sorts. And (laughs) yeah, I'm I'm usually distracted by, because obviously you're going to get diving beetles in there and or down south in Essex here, we get great silver water beetles turn up in moth traps. And stag beetles sometimes as well. I'm not that I had to stag beetle, but I don't do moth trapping very often, but I do tend to get distracted by all, you know, the shield bugs, the carrion beetles, the everything else. One thing, yeah. uh, a question that does occur, Ash. So the carrion beetle adults, are they overwintering underground as pupa or adults or something where they were on the carcass? That's a good question. So they all overwinter as adults, our British species at least, except for Nicophorus investigators. This is one that's got orange markings, which overwinters as a pre-pupa. So that completes its development the following spring. And it's, it's our late summer breeder. So you can see that's the most common one to kind of get around the August time. The first one that will come out will be the all black species, Nicophorus humator, which we've called the undertaker. I say we because the really exciting project that I've been working on during lockdown one, two and three. Actually, no, it's finished now. So we finished it beginning of December with the printers at the moment. I've written an atlas of the hysterids and sylphids of Britain and Ireland. So that will be due out soon-ish. And that has... All our data that we've compiled over the last few years in the form of an atlas. So all those records have been now put as dots on maps, produce these distributions of our British species. So it's for it's a collaboration with Steve Lane, who runs the Hysteridae recording scheme. So that's clown beetles. So he did the Hysterids and I did the Sylphids. And we had the wonderful Colin Lucas, who did all the technical bits and the maps for us. But it's not just a book of maps. It's got identification keys to both groups and it's got lots of information about their biology and ecology, too. So, yeah, all that data is feeding into yeah this piece of of research, really. And it wouldn't have been possible without all these amazing recorders. So very, very grateful to everyone that sends in their records. And we hope that it will continue so that we can carry on learning more about these fascinating groups of beetles. And it is it is really amazing how much the recorders, you know, and and that could be anyone. You know, you Mm -hmm. don't have to. It could be absolutely anyone. You could be out just for a walk or whatever. And if you decide to go looking for stuff you can record it but it's amazing how much that's actually helping us understand more about our species and their distribution isn't it you know yeah yeah, with the public just getting involved and getting out there and and being able to help with the dragonfly recording we've 
we've mapped the invasions of European species and we can also you can see the climate changing with the mm-hmm. map of the species it's just I mean is there any species with northern or southern bias that you can see that happening do you reckon in the uh, yeah. beetles? I mean historically like um we have a couple that so there's Necrophorus interruptus, the interrupted burying beetle, because of the banding. So it has two rows of orange bands on the elytra, and this one, the interrupted burying beetle, usually has a break in the banding. But that's not the only character. I like good common names like that, that actually sort of give you a clue to identification <laughs> rather than just some random name, like a plant it doesn't live on. Yeah. <laughs> you well, get quite often. But like they didn't all have common names. This is something that we've invented for the yeah. book. And there is a little bit of disagreement on common names. Yes, I've come across among, it myself. Entomologists. Um, I, I think for this case, like if it's going to make these beetles more appealing to people that find scientific names challenging, then I do not mind, I think. We can have a bit of fun with these names, make them more accessible. I think it's a good thing. So we've got the undertaker, we've got the bent-legged burying beetle, because that's the way that I remember Necrophorus vespillo. It's got bendy legs. That's its ID feature. So yeah, hopefully the names help help people. But yeah, so we've got Necrophorus interruptus, which has a southern distribution. You'd never find it up here in Scotland, for instance. And we've got Necrophorus vestigator, which is our like scarce, very localised burying beetle, which is kind of found in the Norfolk, Suffolk area. We haven't seen big changes in those two species, but without the data, we wouldn't be able to, we wouldn't even have a clue. Uh, so it gives you a, a starting point as well. Yes. Almost. Yeah. So, uh... That's how you find out these things. That's how you find out, you know, <laughs> neonectides are killing them all. Yeah. Interestingly we'll enough, have a golden beet beetle, carrion beetle, which uh, links in with the, the latest yeah. news there. Just a quick one. If anyone is interested and doesn't know where to start, and you probably have been asked this like a million times, or if they've got any, like they've got young children that are interested, yeah, is, is there a good way to get them kind of like involved and more interested? Um, yeah, nurture it. Um, if there's an interest there, feed that interest. Best thing you can do with kids is get them a hand lens, a magnifier, or one of these little pots that's got a built-in one. Because once you get a close-up look of insects, that's when you start looking at them in a totally different way. And unfortunately, lots of insects are very small, so you do need a little bit of kit to help out with that. But there's lots of fantastic organisations like the Amateur Entomologist Society, Bug Live. The Royal Entomological Society, I help with some of the outreach that the RES do and they have a bug club. I have a, a magazine especially for young people called Antenna. Oh, no, sorry, <laughs> Antenna is for the, for the older entomologist. Uh, Instar is, is for the younger ones. And yes, there's National Insect Week, of course, which is a way for the Royal, Royal Insect to try and promote entomology to the wider public. So there's usually lots of great events for anybody, absolutely anybody to get involved with. Of course, last year it went completely digital because of the pandemic. And that's actually had some really nice positives as well, because that means that people can participate from wherever they are with no travel costs and everything was for free. So even more accessible, which is a big win. But really, yeah, just there's lots of resources out there. There's lots of free talks and workshops for any age. And I would just reach out. There's lots of group on Twitter, whatever, where there's very enthusiastic entomologists that would be happy to devote some time to a young person that's interested so there's lots of great teachers out there that are really eager to pass on their knowledge so reach out to existing entomologists whether they're in museums or you know just yeah reach out to people brilliant thank you yeah so you you organized a recent talk online didn't you with various people about how to outreach in the lockdown didn't you which went quite well i found 
Yeah, that was the, through the Royal Entsock. So I'm their convener for their outreach, a special interest group. It was a really fun time to just chat about outreach during lockdown. So that was with Helen Roy, Professor Helen Roy, who I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, she runs... And will be a guest on this show soon. Yes, excellent. Got her in she... as well. Fantastic. Uh, another one of my role models. Uh, Helen's been incredibly supportive. She's actually one of the people that persuaded me to do the burying beetle, the carrying beetle recording scheme. So she's, yeah, been incredible. So she runs the UK Ladybird scheme and is a professor working at the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology. If you're not familiar with her, she's also the president of the Royal Land Sock. She's a dame as hero. well. Right? Yes, <laughs> yes, she's absolute hero. So it was with her, it was with Professor Adam Hart, who, yeah, is a professor of science communication. Really fantastic to have his input in this. He also leads our committee at uh, the Royal Ensoc on Outreach. And we also had Franz Gontz from the Royal Ensoc who manages National Insect Week. And we had our very own Nick Baker as well, which was fantastic to have him on because his Instagram lives have been a really shining example of how to do something a bit different with the time that we have and how it can really make such a positive impact. I'm very grateful to Nick for having me on his show. It was a great experience, really good fun. It's been good to see this community grow and meet more like-minded people. And it's, it's, a, it, it's a really supportive community as well isn't it and that's yeah. the lovely thing about it I mean I kind of dip in and out just depending on what you know what I'm doing and, and what's on but I'll try and catch up later but you know there's with the group on Facebook as well it's it's just such a lovely group of people that are really supportive of each other and, and that, yeah. which is is exactly what we need right now and, and it's all focused around nature which is fantastic yeah it's wonderful yeah, I enjoyed going on there. That was quite cool. I mean, before we, we recorded this, um, we had a bit of a fangirl <laughs> talk about Nick, didn't we? <laughs> we did. <laughs> and by the time you, you're listening to this, Victoria would have been on there. So you'd probably be able to see yeah, it on his yeah. IGTV. Do go check that out. That seems like a good place to finish there. Well, all I can say is thanks so much for coming on, Ash. It's been great having yeah, you on. You Very so interesting much. stuff. Oh, you're welcome. It's been That's great it. fun chatting. Thanks for hearing all about the Beatles and do spread the word. It's great to hear that, you know, you can tell you're so passionate about it and that comes across and it's infectious as well. So hopefully we can get a few more people coming over to love them a bit more. Yes. My motto has been keep calm and carry on, but like carry on. Oh, dear. (laughs) That's a nil level pun, that is. That is a nil level pun. Oh, dear. Yeah, you definitely get t-shirts made for that one, I think. So, Ash, where can people find you on the social medias? I am Ash Whiffin on Twitter and Ash underscore Whiffin on Instagram. And I've also got a page on the on the museum website if you want to find out more about what I do at work. Yeah, go check that and out, guys. We'll, we'll pop those links and we'll share those links so it's kind of easy to find her. We've got the podcast live still going on. We're probably going to stick with the Thursday 8pm for the lockdown. We didn't have many on the Saturday one at the time we did. So just keep an eye on social media because we may change some times and stuff to suit our schedule a little bit. But we're going to try and keep it at a roughly regular schedule. And yeah, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on Apple, whatever you're using to listen to this podcast. And I guess that's it from us, really, isn't it? Yeah, and please we'll do. If you time. have any questions or anything, any nature-based questions at all, it doesn't have to be on a subject that we're specifically covering in, in an episode. You yeah. can just ask us through our social media channels and we'll happily answer it mm. as well. So please do kind of interact with us. But other than that, that's it from us. Stay safe and we'll see you in the next show. Yep, and thank you again, Ash. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye. Yes, bye. Bye. 
Hi, Neil here. Just a quick note. If you're interested in the book Ash mentioned, you can buy it now from the Field Studies Council website.